Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we've spent a couple of weeks going through this amazing section of Scripture. We looked last week at how the new birth is a necessity because we can do nothing to get to God. We can do nothing to get to Him. We went all over the place in Scripture to look at that. We saw ten reasons why Apart from the new birth, we are hopeless. And maybe we walked away last week, much like Nicodemus walks away, saying, how can these things be? So what do we do? What is our point? What is our goal? What can we do? What do we offer? Starting back in verse 1, just to give us the context yet again, there's a man of the Pharisees, this is John chapter 3, verse 1, named Nicodemus. He's the ruler of the people. That's literally his name, uh, the overcomer of the people, He's also a ruler of the Jews. He's on the Sanhedrin. He is a part of the 70-man Supreme Court in Israel. And he comes to Jesus by night and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And we looked at how knowing and seeing signs that point you to Jesus, it's good, but it falls short. Saying that this man is from God is not enough for Nicodemus to be saved. Even the demons believe that Jesus is God, but they are not saved. Jesus answers, and he answers a question that wasn't really asked, but deep inside of the statement that Nicodemus made, there is a question. And the question is, you are a teacher of Israel, so tell me, teach me what I must do to get to heaven. How do I get to heaven? What do I need to do? Jesus' answer, verse 3 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again, born from above. Nicodemus asks a second question, verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? He's looking physically. Potentially, he's completely missing Jesus's point, or maybe he's getting Jesus's point, but he's saying, how does this happen spiritually? How do I make it happen? I cannot physically enter into my mother's womb and and come back out again as a little baby. That's impossible. So I cannot do anything to get to God. I cannot do anything to get to heaven. So how do I do that? What do I do? He's missing the point altogether, even though he's trying to ask in his second question, what do I need to do? How does this work? Jesus answers, truly, truly, verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This is from Ezekiel. This is Jesus trying to clarify what he said earlier. So Nicodemus asks a question, first question, without really even asking a question, and Jesus answers it very simply, very clearly, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, I don't get it. So Jesus says, let me explain it a little bit more. You must be born of water and of the Spirit. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to Ezekiel. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, where you must be cleansed um, of your sin, born of water, cleansed of your sin, and you also must receive a new heart. Um, you must be regenerated. Your, your heart must be remade. Uh, Ezekiel talks about a heart of stone being taken out, a heart of flesh being put in its place. That's what you need. So this should further clarify, even though for us it befuddles it a little bit more. Hopefully now it clarifies it. It should clarify to Nicodemus. Nicodemus knew that passage. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So even if you could be born again physically, that's not the issue because 
Flesh only produces flesh. You need to be born spiritually from above. God needs to birth you, as it were. The whole point of this section is, what did you contribute to your physical birth? You contributed absolutely nothing. You did not choose the day that you were conceived. You did not choose the day that you were born. You did not choose whether you were going to be a boy or a girl. You didn't choose those things. You did nothing, and so too, to get to God, you do nothing. You do nothing. To be born again is to be born from above. Spiritually, you contribute nothing to God saving your soul, to God regenerating your heart. So he says, verse 7, Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. You should know that, Nicodemus. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born in the Spirit. It's uncontrollable. It's unpredictable. You cannot manufacture it. You cannot make it. The Spirit does what He wishes, just like the wind blows where it wishes. So Nicodemus says, that's as far as we've gotten. Nicodemus says in verse 9, question number 3. The outline for this morning is very simple. Nicodemus is going to ask his third question, and Jesus is going to give his third response. Question number 3, verse 9. How can these things be? How does this work? There's a lot that's inside of this question. Um, How can this happen? How can these things be? Meaning, how can your system of getting to God be the the right system? The Pharisaical system was very easy. Uh, It was a very challenging system to get to God, but it was a very simple system. God loves you based on what you do. If you keep the law, if you're good on the outside, then God will accept you. God's standing up in heaven with a, a list of things that you have to do. And if you have done them, You can check them off the list. You're good. All right, you can enter into heaven. That was the Pharisaical mindset. Very difficult religion because you have to do the things. And even in saying that with a checklist, you can instantly think of other false religions that would say those things, right? There's a checklist. There's a system that you need to do these things. And if you do them, you will be saved. What Jesus is saying is you do nothing. And Nicodemus is asking, how is that possible? What kind of a religion is that? There is no other religion like that. I don't think Christianity is a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ because God has sent his son in order to secure our salvation to be a part of his family. So it's not a religion. It's not doing something to earn his favor. So Nicodemus says, on the one hand, how is that system possible? Nicodemus, in this whole conversation, is having his entire paradigm of living life destroyed shattered and there is no worse paradigm to be shattered in somebody's mind than going from ultra law ultra um, pharisaical thinking to gospel that is a very challenging switch that's why it's an impossible switch on our own we need the spirit Um, think of the prodigal son the prodigal son comes back after living a life of wanton pleasure, um, comes back, receives grace, and the older brother, who is the example of the Pharisee, says, I don't get this. this doesn't, it's not fair. This doesn't make sense. If he goes away and he spends all the money, money and he squanders it, he shouldn't get more, and he did. When he came back, he got more inheritance. He's the son again. He already lost his inheritance. He shouldn't get any more inheritance. And the father says, he's my son again. I'll give him more inheritance. No, that's not fair. It isn't fair. It's grace. Grace isn't fair. Older brothers in that parable 
struggle to understand grace. Uh, another great example of this is in um, Les Miserables. Uh, Jean Valjean is a character who has been stuck under the law of Javert. And Javert is a man who understands law, only law, right, wrong, punishment, judgment. There's no such thing as grace in his mind. And through a series of events, Jean Valjean has the opportunity to kill Javert and should, rightfully so, in his paradigm. And he says, I'll let you go. And he gives him grace and lets him live. Those of you who know the story know Javert's reaction to that. That doesn't fit in his paradigm. That can't work in his mindset. Um, Right is right. Wrong is wrong. There is no such thing as a buffer, as grace, as freedom. That's wrong. You are punished for what you do wrong. And if you do right, you are accepted. And since he cannot fathom what Jean Valjean has done in giving grace to him, he commits suicide. He just cannot fathom that. Nicodemus is at that place. Nicodemus has lived his life in utter perfection as much as he could on the outside. Obviously, on the inside, he has sinned through and through. That's Jesus' whole point. You say don't commit adultery. You think that you're perfect just because you haven't slept with somebody who isn't your spouse. But I tell you, if you look at somebody with lust, um, that's adultery in your heart. You think it's all about the externals. I tell you, it's about the heart. Nicodemus's paradigm is being shattered And so he asks his third question, how can these things be? So, number one, how is this system possible? And then number two, very practically, how does that happen? So, how is this system, these things, this whole system of of your religion, Jesus, as you're teaching it, how is that system possible? And then secondly, how is the new birth possible? If you're telling me it's impossible for me to control it, then how does it happen? How do I make it happen? How do I get it to happen? I want it to happen. How does it happen to me? That's Nicodemus' third question, and Jesus is going to give his third response in verse 10. And it is a masterful response. Verse 10, Jesus answers and says to him, Are you the teacher, definite article, the teacher, a part of the Sanhedrin, maybe even a teacher of the teachers on the Sanhedrin and in the Pharisees. He is the highest of the high in teaching other people this religion. He's the highest of the high in teaching people of the law. To be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the Torah, the, the five books of Moses. You had to memorize those. But to be on the Sanhedrin and to be a really good Pharisee, you should memorize the entire Old Testament. So my guess is Nicodemus had the entire Old Testament memorized. How you memorize the book of Numbers, I have no idea. But he did it. And in the word of God that he memorized, he didn't understand it. He didn't get it. He memorized Ezekiel, but he didn't get it. He memorized Numbers, but he's not going to remember Uh, He's probably going to remember this story, but he's not going to know what the story meant that we're going to look at today in Numbers 21. You don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. There's a lot going on critically in this verse. Um, verse, the, The verse starts out, truly, truly, I say to you, it's a second person singular, to you, Nicodemus, I'm talking to you, We speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. And you, that's second person, plural, you all, the Texan word, y'all, 
Y'all don't accept our testimony. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Pharisees. You know the truth, Nicodemus, and your entire crew doesn't accept it. Who's the we? There's a couple ideas as to who the we is. One idea is that Jesus is trying to parallel. Uh, Nicodemus says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know, me and the rest of the Pharisees know. So some people, I read some commentaries that said that the we is... Um, We've talked about theologians, right? Theologians just like to say big words, and they don't really mean anything. Um, they, I read a commentary that said, Jesus using the, the word we is sardonically aping Nicodemus. So I had to look those words up. And I totally disagree with it. He, it, it means that he's, he's uh, rudely looking down on, on Nicodemus. He's... Um, saying, oh, it would be as if, let's say, uh, Ben is Nicodemus, and I'll be Jesus. It's as if he's saying, we know these things, and Jesus is responding, going, well, we know these things, which I don't think that Jesus does that. So I don't like that response. Plus, there's no proof that that's what it is. Um, I actually think it's probably a reference to him speaking the gospel that the disciples would have known. Potentially, the disciples are there. We don't know that they aren't there. If they weren't there, at least Jesus explained this story um, because John's going to have to know about this story to write it and record it. Maybe John was there. But I think when he says, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, the disciples are lumped into this. We speak the truth of the gospel and you all, I think he's pitting the disciples and the truth of the gospel against the truth or the false truth of the Pharisees' religious system. Either way, it doesn't have any bearing on the point of this passage, so that's a good thing. But the bottom line is he's saying, we've spoken the truth and you won't receive it. You don't accept it. Turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own, namely Israelites, Jews, the Pharisees, did not receive him, did not accept him. He's saying, guys, I've told you the truth. You know the truth. You do not accept it. So, verse 12, if I told you, this is back in John 3, verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I've I've told you easy things, elementary things, earthly examples, and you're not believing them. You're not receiving them. How are you going to believe heavenly things? You're asking, how can these things be? And I can tell you how they can be. How are you going to accept that? Now, this is the beauty of our Savior. He's answered the question there. How can these things be? Well, if you don't understand already, Nicodemus, then you're never going to understand. You don't get it. Your heart hasn't been born again. You cannot spiritually appraise what's happening. So if I'm Jesus in this setting, I'm going to go, I'll pray for you and wait until the new birth happens and walk away. But Jesus doesn't do that. There are two things that we'll find in this passage that will inform our own evangelism. The first is, Jesus does not give up on Nicodemus. He doesn't. He answers the question by saying, you can't spiritually appraise these things. Whatever I say to you right now, you're not going to get. It would be easy to go, so then I'm not going to waste my breath. But he's going to keep on talking. In fact, he's going to move into a monologue to teach Nicodemus. He doesn't give up on him. He doesn't give up. So he moves into this monologue. We're never going to see Nicodemus again in this portion of Scripture. 
He's going to ask his third question. Jesus is going to respond with his third answer. And that's all we see of Nicodemus until chapter 7. And there's a transition in verse 13. There's a big break, and it it seems like a harsh transition. It doesn't really make sense, at least on first reading. As I was reading through this, it made no sense to me. Why this sharp, uh, strange, kind of of out-of-place transition? He says, verse 12, If I told you earthly things you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That doesn't seem like it fits. Um... What's the connection? I think it's threefold. The connection with, uh, from verse 13 with the rest of this section. Number one, connection number one, he just said in verse 12, I told you earthly things that will portray spiritual realities. I'm telling you easy to grasp things. Namely, Ezekiel, uh, heart of flesh, heart of stone, cleansed by water. That's an easy to understand. You're, you're dirty because of your sin. You need to be washed. You need to be cleansed. And Nicodemus is saying, what's that about? I don't get it. Well, that's easy to understand. You're just not accepting it. Um, the wind. The wind blows. How can that be? It's, it's not that hard to understand. It's an earthly example. So the earthly example, I believe connection number one for verse 13 is that Jesus is going to give yet another earthly example. Again, he's not giving up on Nicodemus. He doesn't say, you don't get it? All right, that's it. Come back when you do get it. He's going to say, let me try again. Let me give you another earthly example, namely Numbers chapter 21, an example that Nicodemus would have known. That, by the way, number two on our understanding of evangelism, Jesus, number one, doesn't give up on Nicodemus. And number two, Jesus uses examples that Nicodemus would know. As he describes Ezekiel and the heart of stone and the heart of flesh, Ezekiel would have gone, yeah, I know that. As he describes Numbers chapter 21, Nicodemus would have said, yes, I know that. He's speaking into the context that Nicodemus knows. He's not saying, hey, get what I'm saying, even if you don't understand. He's trying to do his best to speak the language that Nicodemus would know. So connection number one is this is an earthly example that he's about to give. Connection number two, when he says heavenly things in verse 12, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He then says, no one has ascended into heaven, but the Son of Man who has descended from heaven. So the only way that you can know spiritual truths and heavenly realities is if somebody from heaven tells you, and I am that somebody. So connection number two is the connection of heavenly things to I have come from heaven. That's why there's a connection there. Heavenly things that need to be told to you that I can tell to you because I came from heaven. No one else can tell you these things. Because no one else has descended from heaven as the Son of Man has. And number three, just a simple connection here in the grand scheme of this passage. Verse 9, Nicodemus asks a question. And connection number three of why 13, even though it seems strange and out of place, 13 is going to answer Nicodemus' question. 13 through really the rest of the chapter is going to answer Nicodemus' question. How is this possible? How can I receive the new birth? Uh, Jesus is going to answer Nicodemus's question. So, with those connections in mind, let's dive into verse 13. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Um, that's a reference to himself. The Son of Man is a reference to him. There's other places in John. You remember John 9, the man born blind. 
Um, Jesus says, uh, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the, the man says, uh, I would if I knew who he was. I, I was blind, he healed me, and he left, and I don't know who he is. And Jesus says, it is he who is standing right in front of you. Uh, it's me. So he says, would you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man says, I would love to believe in him. I just don't know who he is. And Jesus says, I am him. So I am the Son of Man. Son of Man is Jesus. He is the Son of Man. Um, what's he saying? He's saying there are spiritual realities, heavenly truths that you need to know that only I can tell you because I'm the only one who's come from heaven to do that. I can give you the truth to answer the question that you asked. How is this possible? You're not going to understand it in, earth, in an earthly sense. You need heavenly realities, heavenly spiritual truths to understand it. So, verse 14, he gives another example. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, this is a section of Scripture, Numbers chapter 21, that Nicodemus would have known. There's actually two places that you find this story. Numbers chapter 1 is the first place, and that's the actual account. You actually find a second, it's not a retelling of the story, but it's, it's a postscript of what happened after the story. You remember this story? Um, we're going to turn to it, but there were, there were people that were grumbling and complaining. The Israelites were. God sent fiery snakes to go in to bite them. They were dying. God said, uh, Moses intercedes. God says, I'm going to um, give a provision for you to be healed. And the provision is, make a bronze snake uh, on a pole, stick it up for everybody to see, and if you look at it, you'll be healed, you'll be saved. They took that bronze serpent, and they thought that the power was inside of that bronze serpent. So the Israelites kept it, um, they worshipped it, so much so that they would burn incense to it, um, they would sacrifice to it. So Second Kings chapter 18, verse 4, when Hezekiah comes to power, he finds the snake and he destroys it. Because people had been believing in the snake, in the, the symbol. Um, it, just, it totally reminded me of everything that's gone on this week with the Pope and uh, relics and, and the artifacts that um, they have. That if you touch this, you'll be healed. Or if you pray to that, you'll be saved. Like, no, that's, it, it, the power is not in the things. Uh, the power is in Jesus. And the power is in what God did as, uh, through the means of whatever that thing might be. So... There's actually two places in Scripture where this understanding of the bronze serpent is recorded. So Jesus says, Nicodemus, you remember that story? That's an answer to your question. Uh, how is it possible to receive the new birth? How can I make that happen? You can't, but let me give you an answer to it. And this is the answer. Why is this the answer? Turn back to Numbers. Let's go there. When was the last time you were reading through Numbers? Numbers chapter 21. This is actually a section of Scripture. This, this book is really divided into three parts. And this is the, the back half of the second part of the division of the book. And this is really where Israel realizes their sin, sees their need for help, and is spared by God, and then they are able to go through into the promised land. Uh, Numbers chapter 21. There are so many places in Scripture. We need to pause. Jesus could have answered 
any way, a myriad of ways. But he chose a very obscure uh, passage of Scripture, very short passage of Scripture. Why did he go here? He could have gone to the suffering servant. He could have gone back to the Garden of Eden. He could have gone anywhere in the Old Testament, practically. But he went to Numbers 21 to give Nicodemus an answer. Why is that? I think the answer is because there is no better picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus is going to do than this. This is so specific. It's, it's amazing. And those of you who know this story, I hope that we can go deeper into it because it's very specific with what Jesus is going to do when he's on the cross. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God. That's always wrong. Never speak out against God. That's a bad thing. I did that this week. Um, I've talked with some of you this week of how I spoke out against God as I got into my car. And my car reads 108 on my dash, on my little thing. And I feel like I'm about to be incinerated as I sit in my car. I spoke out against God and said, God, it's fall already. Please, can we have a respite? This is Monday morning, by the way. Get into my car. Lord, help us. Like, it's, it was my birthday. Like, give me a birthday present of weather. Like, please help me. Just sweating. Oh, it was bad. And uh, I, get to, I get to Heritage. I teach. I start studying uh, for this sermon, and I'm reading through this passage, and I realize there are snakes that are sent because people are speaking out against God. And so I go, okay, God... You can do whatever you want with the weather. I am happy to be alive. Please forgive me. Um, very convicting. These people speak out against God and Moses. Verse 5. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? You think Egypt is bad with heat. The wilderness is even worse. What are you doing, God? And then they say this. There is no food. That's not true. There is no water. That's not true. We loathe this miserable food. This is, again, a point that I say a lot, but sin makes you stupid, right? Sin makes you stupid, so much so that they're even logically inconsistent with what they're saying. We have no food, God, and the food that we have is bad. It doesn't make sense, but sin makes you stupid. We loathe, literally, there's, uh, the Hebrew word is in our very beings. We couldn't hate this even more if we wanted to. This miserable food. What is the miserable food? It's manna that God had provided for them. We hate what you're giving us. We hate that you're doing this. We just hate you. They're complaining, but complaining is saying, God, I wish you were dead and I was ruling the universe. So verse 6, what happens? The Lord sent fiery serpents. There's a number of reasons why people give for why it's fiery serpents. Some say that they were actually on fire. Some say that they just look like they were on fire. Some say that... Um, they were hot to touch. Some say that when they bite, I think this is probably the more logical of them, when they bit the, the poison that was injected into you, either, number one, felt like it was a burning sensation, or number two, uh, it made you break out into an enormous fever and you would die from the fever. I think that's probably more of what it's saying. God sends these snakes among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. 
because we have spoken out against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Side note here, Moses does a lot of dumb things in his life. This isn't one of them. He could have easily have said, you know what, you're getting what you deserve. You spoke out against me. You spoke out against God. This is his judgment. Sleep in the bed you made. No, he intercedes for them. What a gracious shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, here's the answer. Moses is asking, please, God, save us. Help these people. Don't let them die. Cure them. So Moses hears from God. God says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, set it on a pole, set it on something high, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, just a couple observations as we go through this. Uh, Number one, God sends the snakes. God sent the snakes. It's very clear, verse 6, the Lord sent the snakes. Uh, It's a representation of judgment, right? God is judging them. This is his wrath against their sin. They sin. They deserve punishment. This is their punishment. God sent them. Uh, Number two, the serpent on the pole is not preventative. Don't, don't, it's not you look at the pole and you won't be bit. You are looking at the pole because you've already been bit. Uh, Number three, God sends the bronze snake idea. Um, He sent the serpents and he sends the idea to undo what the serpents are doing. He provides the judgment, as it were, and he provides the way of escape from the judgment. He is undoing, as it were, the judgment and punishment which he was bringing. Number four, God could have lifted up anything, any animal, I would have expected a lamb. Stick a lamb up on a pole, make a lamb out of bronze, stick it up on a pole, look at a lamb. God sends the message to Moses, put a snake on the pole and look at a snake. Why? If he could have done anything, why the snake? Uh, We'll get to that in just a second. And then number five, just very simple observation. All they have to do is look at the bronze snake and they're healed. That's all they do. Just stare at it, you're healed. Stare at the bronze snake and you'll live. So that's the story. Numbers 21. That's the story that Jesus is referring to. Now let's go back to John. John chapter 3. Jesus says, Just as Moses, this is chapter 3, verse 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. He is saying so much in these two verses. He says, must. The Son of Man must be lifted up. This must happen. Obviously, the lifting up is referring to his death. It's used four times in the Gospel of John, this phrase, lifted up, and they all have to do with his death, other than this one, which is a reference to his death, even because he's saying Moses lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up, and from that from that moment forward, there are two other examples, uh, two other times that you see lifted up. And it's always used of the cross, of people lifting him up on the cross as he's nailed to it. So Nicodemus is asking, how is the new birth possible? How can it happen to me? We talked last week about the necessity of the new birth, right? We talked about how you must be saved 
by God doing the work because we're spiritually dead. We talked about all the obstacles for us to be saved. But we didn't exhaustively talk about them because Jesus is going to mention yet another obstacle. In this moment, he's going to mention, here's another obstacle for you receiving the new birth, and here's how I'm going to fix it. What's the obstacle? The obstacle is your sin. The obstacle is the wrath of God against your sin. And he uses the best illustration possible. Israelites sinned. God judges them by sending a serpent, sending these snakes. They bite and people die because of their sin. That's what we all deserve. And God makes the provision if you have been bitten, so you're not perfect, you sinned, you deserve to die because you were bitten by a snake. You deserve to die. All of us have sinned, Romans 3.23, fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 6.23. The wages of our sin is death. We deserve it. We've all sinned, and so we all deserve to die. All of us have been bitten, as it were. We are all hanging under the wrath of God. And so Jesus intercedes for us. And God makes a provision to take away the judgment and to heal us. How does he provide that? This is why I think it's so profound that God decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a snake. Put a snake up on a pole. The very thing that has bitten you and the judgment of God that is destroying you, I'm putting that on a pole. What is he saying? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, to be sin. The fiery serpents are the judgment of God, and that's what's going to be placed upon the cross. The judgment that you and I deserve for our sin is what's going to be put up on the cross in Jesus Christ. He became sin for us. He never sinned, but he became sin for us. A serpent, everybody would know in the Old Testament, a serpent is reminiscent of the serpent, the greatest or the worst serpent that's ever lived, Satan himself. Jesus would take that form, if you will. He would take the sin, the curse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. That's why God chose a snake as the example. What was biting you to kill you? to destroy you because of God's judgment against your sin. That's what I'm going to put on the cross. God judged Jesus as if you and I have uh, lived his perfect life and as if he lived our sinful life. God took all of our sin, put it on Jesus at the cross, and punished him as if he has lived our sinful lives, even though he was perfect. And that's exactly what this representation is. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Nicodemus, for you to receive the new birth, something else must be overcome. Namely, your sin must be paid for in full and done away with, and this is how it's going to happen. I will be lifted up. I will take upon the curse that you have. I will bring it to myself, and God will punish it in my body. A couple observations in verse 14, um, 
Jesus is the source of our healing and the source of our rescue, just as the snake was. He's going to be lifted up parallel to that. But very different from the snake. The snake was just a means. Uh, There was nothing amazing about that bronze serpent. Not so with Jesus. Jesus, there is something amazing about him. And that's what's so beautiful about the gospel and about the cross. What Jesus gives by his work is eternal life. Whoever believes, verse 15, will in him have eternal life. What is the believing? The believing is the looking. It's compared to the looking in Numbers chapter 21. You look and you are saved. You believe and you are saved. Nicodemus is asking, how is this possible? Back in verse 3, Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And now Jesus is saying in verse 14, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you believe. You, you have to look, you have to see, you have to receive. You are born again. He's bringing all these things together. Remember we talked about salvation is a huge umbrella. Inside of it we have regeneration, we have repentance, we have faith. We have all of these different things inside of salvation. This is another aspect of salvation. You must believe You must receive, you must look. All of it's connected, I believe, back to John chapter 1. The whole thesis at the beginning of the book, uh, from John's perspective, John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw, we looked and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Drop down to verse 16. For of His fullness we have all received We have seen, we have believed, we have accepted, we have received, and grace upon grace we have received. So Jesus is lifted up, we look to him, we live, we see him. The cross ratifies the new covenant that is sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ so that the new birth is even possible. It's made possible to regenerate us because of the cross. Andrew, remember in chapter 1, Andrew said to Peter, we have found the Messiah, come and see. See, look, just stare at him. Look and live. One pastor says, in the same way that the children of Israel carrying about the deadly poison of the bite of the snake could be delivered by de- from death by looking up at the bronze serpent, so it is that sinners carrying the poison of the arch serpent and the sin that he perpetrated on the human race can be delivered from death by looking up at the crucified Savior. Look up. And that's observation. the last observation in verse 15 that's very clear. There is nothing that anyone does to be saved except for looking up. How were the people saved in Numbers 21? They looked up. They, they didn't do anything else. It would be so easy if you were in their shoes to say, I just got bit. Let's start going down the line of things we need to do. Suck out the poison, spit it out. Um, Let's go to the doctor really quickly. He'll take care of it. I mean, go down the line. You would trust in yourself. You would look to doctors. You would look to yourself. You would look to so many different things. And anybody who did that died. The only people that lived were the people who said, I'm not going to do anything. How counterintuitive. Remember, think of Nicodemus' problem with this whole religious issue. You're telling me to be saved. I do nothing. Um, think about if, if you got into a car accident and your leg got chopped off. How are you going to survive? Quick, take your belt off, make a tourniquet. Do, you're in survival mode. It would be as if God were to say, you know what, if you put a tourniquet around your leg, you're going to die. Do nothing. Just look to me and I'll save you. What? That's foolishness. 
We need, to, we need to save ourselves. We need to go into a mode where we fix ourselves. And God says, of course it's foolishness. The gospel is foolishness. You have a problem that you think you can fix, but you can't. You need to just look. Just look. By the way, just a side note, in our looking, sometimes we look at ourselves. Sometimes we look to doctors in this analogy. We look elsewhere. We look to other things. I think the biggest thing that we tend to look at when we're trying to look to Jesus is we look at our looking. How well am I looking? Am I looking enough? Am I looking hard enough? Am I looking right enough? Am I looking clear enough? Am I, we look at our looking. This passage clearly says just look. Don't worry about how you look. Just look. Just stare at Jesus and you will be saved. Stare at him. There's an amazing example of this in church history. A man that you all know by the name of Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. Uh, He was not quite 16 years old when he was converted. It was January 6th, 1850. Uh, He had been trying to believe in Jesus. I don't know if you've had people that have told you that before. I really want to believe. I try to believe. I, I, I think that God's right and I try to believe in him, but I just can't just struggling. What's your answer to them? My answer would be keep looking. Keep looking. Keep staring. That was Charles Spurgeon's answer. This is from his autobiography, um, his conversion story. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. This was not an average snowstorm. He's in England, and this wasn't uh, something that was typical. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Isaiah 45:22, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, And I love this preacher's words and tone. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year or be able to look to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, Look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. Look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Jesus, the text says. Look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on a cross. 
Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. I love that. Ten-minute sermon, done. I've got nothing else to say. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all of my heart, he said, Young man, you look miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow that struck right home. He continued, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you do not obey this text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with one thought. Like as with the bronze serpent being lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And so now I can say, and he quotes the words of William Cooper. You remember William Cooper? We studied him, uh, attempted suicide three times because he struggled with looking. He kept looking to his sin When he would look to his Savior, he was entirely at peace, but then he would look inward to his sin. Charles Spurgeon mentions the words from, There is a fountain filled with blood. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I don't know where you are in your spiritual walk with the Lord. I don't know if you are saved. I don't know if you love Jesus. I don't know where you are. But I know this. Wherever you are, if you look to Jesus, you will be saved. Look to Him. Don't look inward to good works, to your effort, to I'm not as bad as. Look to Jesus. The provision that was made for you at the cross is the only hope that you have of salvation. For it is by the cross that the provision is made possible for you to be regenerated, for you to receive the new birth, for you to repent of sin, for you to believe. The cross is everything for a believer. Look to Jesus. And if you are saved and you love him, keep looking. We are tempted so many times in our Christian life to look inward, to look at Jesus for salvation and then look inward for sanctification. Look to Jesus. Look until, as Spurgeon says, your eyes can't look anymore 
And when they close in death, they will open to looking at Jesus again. Look to him. Jesus gives this answer. This is the beginning of the answer. He'll finish out the answer next week. But he answers Nicodemus's question, how can these things be? We never hear of Nicodemus again. There's no rebuttal. Three questions, that's it. What happened to him? Because this is all for him, right? This is all for Nicodemus. What happens? His whole world has been rocked. His whole religious system has been dismantled. Everything he held dear has been obliterated. What happened to him? John chapter 7 is the next time that we see him. It's at the very end of John chapter 7. Uh, The Pharisees are debating and they say, we need to kill Jesus. And Nicodemus sticks up for him a little bit. I don't think it's saving faith in John 7. But he sticks up for him and kind of says, wait, he's a man of the law. He's not lawless. He shouldn't be killed. Sticks up for him. Then, in chapter 19, verse 38, after Jesus has died, he buys 75 pounds of spices, which is a whole lot of money, to anoint his body for burial. And this demonstrates his adoration for Jesus. What changed between John 3 and John 19? The simple fact is the wind blew. The wind blew where it wished. The Spirit regenerated as he stared at Jesus. He saw him. He stared at him. Maybe it was in John 19 when Nicodemus is seeing Jesus slaughtered on a cross and he remembers this conversation and says, I need to look. Look and live. That's it. Look and live. And Jesus, Jesus saves him. And Nicodemus is redeemed. We don't know the rest of his life, but we know by tradition. So this isn't for sure fact. It's, it's a probable likelihood. Nicodemus showed up before Pilate's trial of Jesus and defended him. Tradition tells us. Tradition also tells us that Nicodemus was baptized by Peter and John. One on each arm, baptizing him. His confession of Jesus as Savior led him to being removed from the Sanhedrin, the 70 men that he was a part of, that Supreme Court. He was permanently banished from Jerusalem. He became severely impoverished. His daughter was so destitute that she was digging in dung piles and refuse piles for grain to be eaten. A rabbi came by and felt compassion on her and asked her who she was. She said that she was the daughter of Nicodemus. And the rabbi said, what happened to him? She said, he follows Jesus and has been banished. And the rabbi refused to help her after hearing that, she, that her father followed Jesus. Tradition says that Nicodemus was martyred by being beaten to death by a mob. He was rejected by those who used to esteem him. He was killed by those who used to be his friends. He was forsaken by man. And he was loved by the God of the universe. Somewhere in John, his heart was changed. And he said, it doesn't matter. Let me be destitute. Let me be despised. Let me be be forsaken of man. I've tried everything to get their approval and to get God's, and I've realized none of it works. So God, you need to help. What can you do? You can ask and you can look. And God, by his grace, can regenerate your heart. Father, I praise you for your amazing grace. 
I praise you for the example of Nicodemus who looked and lived. And I pray for those in this room, many who know you, who are looking to you and have looked unto you for salvation. God, there are many in this world that still have yet to look. May we just direct their eyes to you. And God, if there are any in this room that don't know you as Lord and Savior, that look inward, that look outward to other places, but don't look to you, God, I pray that today would be the day that they would look to you for salvation. That the wind of your Holy Spirit would blow in such a way to bring regeneration. God, thank you for salvation. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the cross. And I pray that we would be like Nicodemus, completely fine with whatever may come, since we are known by you. We have no safety and security in this world, but if we are secure in your arms, we have everything we need. All we can say, God, is thank you. You've done nothing to earn your favor. You've done it all. So we just say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and just...